Jesus' name, we thank you so much uh, for this great opportunity we have before you today, Lord. Again, Father, we uh, understand, Lord God, that without you, that we're nothing. Without you, Lord God, even though we're made in your image, Lord God, even though we were cast in your image, Lord God, we were cast out uh, the very uh, thicket of who you are, Lord God, as mankind sinned against you. Uh, therefore, Father, we are so grateful to come before your presence today, again, in fellowship with one another, Lord God, but uh, to experience all that you have in store for us, Lord God, the word, uh, the fellowship, Lord God, and, and your presence, Lord God. We ask you that you would touch us today. Touch us deeply, Lord God. Help us to uh, move all those things, Lord God, that's preventing us from uh, receiving every droplet of your presence, your word that you have in store for us today, Lord. Again, Lord God, we love you. And we thank you. And we ask you that this would be a very significant and meaningful time for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you uh, ever remember uh, your first experiences riding a bicycle. I remember that uh, when I received my first bicycle as a child, that I could not ride a bike. And my parents said, can you ride a bike? I said, yeah. So here I was as a kid, uh, and on my block, uh, every family had a fence along, straight along the, the, the block. So what I would do, I would pedal, but I would hold on to the fence going down the block. Well, uh, this idea uh, is, is really not much different from my own children when they were young. I remember my daughter, when she, I was teaching her how to ride a bike, how old were you, like 18, I think it was? No, she wasn't that old, maybe 17 and a half. Uh, and I was teaching her how to ride a bike, that what I would do, I would run behind her. I said, you go ahead and pedal. So I'd run down the block. We lived on the cul-de-sac at that time. So I would run down the block. I would hold on to it. I would let go, hold on. I ran all the way down the block. I said, let's go back. She said, well, don't let go. Don't let go. I said, okay, okay, I'm not going to let go. So we went back and forth a couple of times. And as you know, uh, after a period of time, my brother got tired. So... Uh, this last time, I had it already made up in my mind how we were going to do this thing. Uh, we were facing the cul-de-sac, not facing the street, facing the cul-de-sac. I said, okay, we're going to do it again. Let's go. So I started running behind her, and she's just pedaling along. I said, yeah, you got it. She said, you're holding on, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm holding on, right? And she's pedaling. She said, are you holding on? I said, yeah, I'm holding on, all right? And eventually, she turned around and saw that I was not there. You know what happened to her? Oh, yeah, she crashed big time. Yeah, down the hill, she said. She crashed big time. Uh, but sometimes those experiences are really good. Uh, my son, David, uh, he was easy peasy, right? I did the same thing to him about one or two times, and he got it, and he was done. Uh, but my son, Terrence, on the other hand, he was a different story. Because he said that, well, I want to learn how to ride a bike. However, if... I ride a bike, there's a couple of things I need first. So he insisted on having a helmet. Smart move. I probably should have did that to the rest of your, your brothers and sisters as well. Uh, he had to have elbow pads on. 
and knee pads. Because basically he says that, you know, I know that you help my brother and sister ride their bike with all that other stuff, but what I'm saying, and these are uh, the resources that I need. And if he didn't have those things, he would not ride the bike. Because in his little mind, he knew that he was going to crash, and you're probably right, everybody crashes. But eventually he had success, but his condition was that if I ride the bike, if I'm going to be a success, uh, these are the things that I need. You see, many of us, as we live the Christian life, we oftentimes don't live our Christian life fully because we give conditions to God. We said, God, first, you know, I want to witness to so-and-so, but before I witness to them, uh, you have to first make sure that they say some spiritual thing first. Or we say that, well, I really want to testify, but I need to first memorize a chapter of Scripture. Or they say that, well, I need to attend Sunday school for a year. Some even go as far as saying that if I'm going to be a good witness of Jesus Christ, I need to go to Bible college first. So the question is, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what resources do you really need to do what God has called you to do? But we have confidence knowing that Jesus calls and Jesus, he equips all of his disciples. If you are a disciple of Christ for the proclamation of his kingdom, uh, please turn with me to Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. The passage says, and he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The first thing we see in our passage in verse 1 is that it is the call of the believer, uh, this is what begins our journey. The call of the believer, that begins our journey. And you know, we oftentimes think of uh, the call of the Lord to us as a call of salvation. Or the doors of the church are open. Uh, Jesus is calling you. Saying, sinner, come home, come home, come home. Right? In our minds, we think oftentimes that a call is framed only 
within the, this aspect of salvation. But the Lord also calls or chooses us for a duty that He has planned for no one else to fulfill except for us. So yes, God has called you to be saved, right? And once you can tick that off of your list, you are good to go for this next section in which God also calls or chooses us for duty. And that duty is a unique call. It's a unique call to us as individuals. But yet, unique to us as a collective group of followers of Jesus Christ. Within the Christian community, we are called to accomplish many goals that are specific, right? So God calls you, and he calls you to these goals, and he calls you to this purpose that are specific to your character, your personality, your gifting, and also your occupation as well. You see, God may use your occupation as an avenue to proclaim the kingdom of God. This is why, understand, we are never, ever, ever, ever to be jealous of someone else as they steward their giftings before the Lord. Right? You can't. How are you going to be jealous of what someone else does? Well, look at the way that they pray. Or, well, look at the way that they teach class. Or, well, uh, look at the way that they sing. Or, look at the way that they usher. Or, look at the way that they make food. Or, look at the way they do this, that, and the other. The idea is that God wants to use you, and he wants to use you where you are. You see, jealousy does nothing within the body of Christ except to sow division. So we must be confident, number one, that we are saved. And then be confident of knowing that Jesus calls us to ministry. And again, it is unique, it is specific to you. One thing about the calling of Jesus to his disciples is that he calls us to task. Here it is, that Jesus calls us to tasks which are impossible for us to complete. What I'm saying. So if you're thinking that, well, you know, this is what I have, so this is what I can do. You see, no, 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 no. God is saying that you cannot put any limits on his calling. God will always call you to do things that are impossible for you to complete. And if you can do everything that God has called you to do without his help, then guess what? You don't even need him. You don't even need God if you have all the knowledge, if you have all the strength to do what he has called you to do. Think about it for a moment, the people that you're praying for. Is this too hard? Or the assignment to share Christ, maybe on the bus with someone. It's too scary. Since that you need to say something to a person and you are afraid. These are acts that you feel as if they are impossible. And in those moments, you and me, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. 
but also think of that calling in terms of the church as well. You see, if the Lord calls our church into existence, he calls you as a part of the church. And if he calls you as a part of the church, you must respond uh, because of the glory of the Lord and the life of the church. It depends upon your obedience. You see, if you don't move into obedience, the life of the church begins to lack. Oh, that church ain't got this. That church ain't got that. Well, the reason that church don't have this or the reason that church don't have that is because you're not doing what God has called you to do. How can we be the full life of the church, and the church is a living organism, if you are not actively engaged in ministry life? But he calls you to do things that are impossible. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Look at this. It says here, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to him, said to them, right, uh, what did he call his disciples to do? You see, uh, that Jesus, he called his disciples to do something they can't do. Why would Jesus call his disciples to solve a problem that is unsolvable? Why does he call you uh, to do this in his name or do that in his name? Look at Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, beginning in verse 4. Luke 5, beginning in verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, oh, here's Peter again, uh, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, uh, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And catch fish at a place where he had been unsuccessful uh, just a few moments ago, and in fact, all night long. You see, since Peter, as you know, he was a professional fisher. He had attempted to catch fish all night long. Uh, so uh, probably in his mind, what sense does it make to go right back to that same spot? Because you had already been there. You know about fish. You know about weather. You know about the water. You know about the environment. You know uh, when you can go in, and you've already done it all night long. So Jesus, why are you telling me to do something again? I've already been considered an occupational failure. I can't do it, so why are you looking at me again saying to go and fish again? Just because you have tried things before and you've tried them over and over again, and you've tried them ad nauseum, this does not mean that you are an expert. I don't care how many titles, 
I don't care how many certificates, how many classes that you have attended, or how much experience you have under your belt. There's only one true expert in life, and that one true expert in life is Jesus Christ. So if you have been fishing on the right side of your boat for 29 hours, and then you fish on the left side of your boat for 29 hours, you figure that there's nothing there, and then Jesus comes into, uh, into play and tells you, you need to fish again on the right side of the boat. The idea is uh, you're supposed to do what God calls you to do, and that is the impossible. Only Jesus is an expert in all matters. Only Jesus is an expert in all potentialities. So ditch your pride and grab hold to that net again because only the all-knowing one knows where you can catch the fish. You see, we as disciples of Christ, and this is a fact, we need to be supplied with God's resources. We need to be supplied with God's resources. Okay. So looking at our passage here, again, Luke 9, 1. Right? And we see here, uh, of all the things that Jesus gives his disciples, right, what does he give them? Our passage says, and he called the twelve together and gave them what? Power and what? Authority. So uh, he didn't say, well, you need, first thing you need, need is uh, another pair of clothes, another set of clothes. He didn't tell them that you need to go to Bible study 500 times. He didn't tell them that they need to go to seminary. He told them uh, that I am going to give you power and authority, and that's all you need. These divine resources are critical because, number one, on the one hand, authority, it gives you the right to do something. And power, it gives us the ability to make it happen. Now, one more time, authority gives you the right. A power gives you the ability. For instance, if the police showed up at your house because they just wanted to come in saying that uh, we need to come in your house and do a search. You already know that's not good enough. Because in the back of your mind, you said, if you're going to come into my house first, you need something else. Even though you have a badge on, even though you have this, that, and the other. Uh, th there's one thing that you lack, Mr. Police Officer. You have no authority. So in most cases, they produce, I do say most, in most cases, they produce a search warrant because that search warrant deals with the cognizant or the thinking part of ourselves, which inherently recognizes the right of another. See, authority, when authority comes in the picture, sometimes, uh, somehow in your heart and in your mind, you recognize their authority to say or to do what they need to do. Now, whether or not we agree with that is another story. Whether or not we agree with what uh, that uh, search warrant says, uh, that's uh, totally immaterial. The fact remains that the right to search 
has been secured by the one who possesses that legal document. So in your mind, in our mind, uh, we begin to understand the rights of another. That document gives the right. Now in the case with power, uh, now that they have the authority, they, they can now exercise that power. How? Either in number or in weaponry to carry out that right. So first they had the right, and then uh, they have the power, either in weaponry or in number. You see, refusing to recognize their rights with the warrant causes them to exercise their power by default. At that point, whether you agree or not, all bets are off. Last week, it's very fascinating, last week there was a story in the news about a police officer, this is a real story, who had uh, asked for a search warrant. And uh, so he received the search warrant and they went in to carry out a raid on a house. And you know, in order to get a search warrant, they have to have proper rationale, a pro proper, you know, uh, all the information they need to make that happen, to go before a judge to make sure that it happened. But they discovered after the fact that uh, the police officer lied to get the warrant. So even though he said he had the authority, he lied to get the authority. So what's happening now is the very people that he had a search warrant to search out and to put in jail, they're going to let them go and take the police officer and put him in jail. Why? Uh, because he did not have uh, the authority to do what he claimed to do. You see, his lies diluted his ability to have authority, diluted his ability to exercise true power, thereby making him ineligible of the very demand that he was making of another person. But under normal circumstances, that officer had every right to do what he did. Now, some would say we no longer have the power uh, to heal diseases, right? Disciples of Jesus, it says not only that they have a power and authority, uh, but uh, to proclaim the gospel, and it says to heal diseases. Ah, uh, does the scripture say that? I, I don't hear you. Now, you're going to have to speak to me now. Does the scripture say that? And the answer is, uh, one more time, does the scripture say that? Your answer is, okay, it, it, yes, the scripture says that. Again, some would say that, well, you know, uh, we no longer have uh, the power to heal diseases. Yet, on the other hand, some say, well, but we have the authority to proclaim the kingdom of God. So in other words, what you're saying is that I believe all that verse except for, I'm going to believe everything that God says except for, uh, you cannot divorce the one from the other. Now, before you go running away from me, hear me out. Amen. Now, some would say that we no longer have the power to heal the diseases. And I would agree to a certain extent, but disagree to the other in terms of the message of the kingdom. 
Right, hear what I'm saying? In terms of the message of the kingdom. So the question must be asked, why did God give them uh, the authority and the power to proclaim the kingdom of God and also to heal diseases? Why did God give them this in the first place? Sometimes the gospel requires the testimony of God's power in order to wake some people up out of their sleep. This is just a fact. Sometimes it requires... Uh, and, 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 but, but, but who makes the decision on this? Is it us? Or is it God who makes the decision? And at the end of the day, it is God who makes the decision. But uh, for the disciples in their message, this good news, it wasn't about necessarily, it wasn't about the crucifixion of Christ, it was about the coming of the Messiah. That's what it was about. It was about the coming of that long-awaited Messiah that Israel had been waiting on thousands of years. And at that time, Jesus had not been crucified. Therefore, Gentiles were not waiting uh, the Gentiles, everybody who's not a Jew, uh, they were not waiting on the Messiah, uh, but Israel was. And this is why uh, this message was first directed only to the Hebrews. You understand that? So if you read scripture and you, you would see parts and it says that, uh, well, don't go to anybody else except for the Jews. In your mind, if you're saying that, uh, therefore, uh, the message of the gospel has nothing to do with us, you're wrong. But look at this, Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them. What does the passage say? Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the, house, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See there? In some people's mind, they're saying, again, that proves to you, this is what Jesus said, that that gospel, that salvation, that it was not for us. The Lord had a plan for all people. The Lord has always had a plan for all people. Oh, why do you say that? Because God loves people. Well, how do you know? Because Jesus says what? For God so loved the world. Are you a part of the world? Okay. So if God so loved the entire world, that means that he's always had a plan for everybody everywhere. Gentiles, they were not untouchable. And neither did the Lord plan on leaving them out in the lurch. So if the Hebrews originally accepted uh, Jesus Christ as a whole, uh, that, that, that God had not planned on just leaving the Gentiles out there. That's you and I. No. You see, and this was part of the problem with the Hebrews in the first place. You know, they believed that the message was only for them. They believed that they were better than others. They believed that they couldn't, remember you know, some of the scripture, they couldn't even go inside of a Gentile's house. Right? Oh, no, you're going to make me unclean. 
Well, this is just for us. But remember, God loves the world. I feel as if one of the reasons people don't share the gospel, though, as we move on, is a sense that they believe that they are not prepared enough. Why are we so lax in doing what the Lord has called us to do? What plans do we have to share our testimony of salvation with our family and friends? And has the Lord given us all the resources we need to accomplish that goal? So keep this in mind now. Jesus first gave them power and authority over all demons and for healing. Looking at this passage one more time. Verses 1 and 2. There's something here uh, that we see that happens in literature, and specifically here, I'm not sure if Luke had intended on, on doing this, but yet he created it anyway, uh, something that we call the chiasmus. And the chiasmus basically is that you have this one idea uh, up front, uh, and that same idea repeats itself at the very end of the picture, uh, but what's on the focus is that which is in the middle. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. See, that's the first thing. You see, you see what's first? And then in the middle it says that, and he went and he sent them out to do what? To proclaim the what? The kingdom of God. But then on the end, it says what? And to heal. So if you say that uh, if you are a disciple of Christ, your only responsibility is only to proclaim uh, the gospel of the kingdom or the kingdom of God, uh, that sometime God opens the door for you to be an avenue of healing in someone else's life. Now, uh, hold on, for you go out with all your oil and, and all your other stuff that you plan on doing. Uh, don't go all willy-nilly. No, no, don't go nuts now, Right? Because it says that you must be called. Uh, looking at this passage, uh, one thing that you, you must understand is that God, he limited the power and authority. Who had the power and authority? And who did he limit it to? He limited the power and authority to 12 individuals. Only to 12. Only to 12 people. But does this mean no one else received it? And if you say yes, then you would be wrong. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Romans 15, 18 and 19. Paul says here, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So even though uh, the word authority is not mentioned, understand that God will not give his power without his authority. It's there. Uh, but when we see the idea of power and, and authority, here's another one of those fancy words. It's called a, a hendiades. 
Hendiades is when you have a two words that come together to mean one thing. So those two words, a power and authority, basically means power. So when you see power, you can expand that out to understand it means power and authority. You can go the reverse way. Uh, so the idea that when Paul speaks of power, he tells us very clearly, verse 19, by the power of what? Signs and wonders. Look at one more passage of Paul. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. He says here, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Uh, who is the hour? The hour are those who are part of the body of Christ. The hour is a part, uh, con con it contains everyone who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Again, verse 2 seems to be that key verse for us back in Luke chapter 9. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Healing is not left out in the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Yet healing always seems to be left out when we proclaim the kingdom. Have we missed something important due to our arrogance or lack of dependence on the Lord and his word? Is it possible that by refusing to recognize the place of healing in gospel proclamation, we lose a key component of the provision and power the Lord has afforded all of his disciples? Is that possible? God's word encourages his disciples to evangelizing, to evangelize with full dependency and trust on him. Can you say amen? So when God calls us to be an evangelist and he calls all of us to be such a thing, that we go so on full dependency of God and full trust in the Lord, scripture says, trust in the Lord. What? With all your heart and lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall do what? Amen. Disciples are not to be dependent on their own resources. Verse 3. <clears throat> and he said to them, <clears throat> take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. You see, dependence on yourself, it weakens the results. You see, uh, if you try to depend upon yourself, it, it, it weakens the result. It, it weakens the result. It, it weakens what Jesus wants to do. Jesus told them to take nothing for the journey there in verse 3. In fact, we see by the word when it says no or nor, uh, mentioned six times in that passage. They didn't need extra stuff to go out witnessing. They couldn't take an additional tunic. What in the world is a tunic? It's like long underwear, so to speak. So Jesus says, only take one pair of long underwear with you when you go out. Some of y'all, well, okay, all right. Why? Because the Lord would provide. How many of us would go on a trip with just the clothes on our back? They only needed power and authority 
Anything that they could do for themselves, Jesus made sure that they didn't rely upon them, even uh, if it would have been no problem for them to get the resources. Again, uh, you don't need all that stuff. Jesus says you only need him. But they went anyway, did they not? They went on the journey anyway, even with those limitations set into place. I can probably imagine myself saying, Lord, I want to go, Lord, but you know, Lord, uh, I need to have, you know, I need to have all my medication, right? Or, or, or Lord, I need to have, you know, at least some bottled water with me, Lord. Or, or, or Lord, I need to at least have a couple of sets of clothes. So, because uh, you know, it ain't no laundromats out here in the wilderness, Lord God. All right, I, I can hear myself, you know, with a myriad of excuses or reasons why uh, that I need to delay my time on the mission field for Jesus Christ. When we have limitations, we go in the power of the Lord. But then, uh, as a disciple, we are to discern the heart of the people that we are to minister to and to act accordingly. Verses 4 and 5. Luke chapter 9. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against him. In other words, you know, you go, you do what God has called you to do with love. And if they don't respond, don't get mad. You don't have to hang out there uh, trying to close the deal. Amen? Uh, you just go in there with love and tell them how much they need Christ. You may have to tell them that if you don't, if you don't receive Christ, that you are going to hell. Salvation is not a deal to be made, but a salvation to be had. And that's uh, the heart of, of what we do. It's about a salvation that we need. It's about a savior uh, that you need to have in your life. And if we understand this, this prevents us uh, from attempting to, to force salvation on people who will probably not end up saved anyway. Even if, you, even if they say, yeah, I accept Jesus, they're probably just tired of you. Yet, this idea of uh, the proclamation of the kingdom of God, it is a non-negotiable for us. You do not get out of not speaking for Christ. This is who you are. This is who we are. So ministry success, it hinges on total obedience to Christ. Verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they had, they had success. They accomplished everything that they set out to do. They preached the gospel. People got healed. Did they do what Jesus wanted them to do? And the answer is yes. One thing is missing out of the equation, right? One thing that we don't see in the passage. How many people did they proclaim the gospel to? How many people received Christ? And did the disciples meet the goal? The bottom line is that there is no number mentioned there. There's no number. 
Now, Jesus says, well, I'm going I'm to equip you guys. I'm going to give you power and authority uh, to proclaim uh, the gospel of the kingdom. And you're, you're going to heal diseases. Uh, you're going to uh, cast out demons. And uh, you need to do about 6,000 before you get back now. No, he didn't say that. He says to go out, proclaim the kingdom. Go out and heal, right? Go out and cast out. He says go out, do all these things. But if they don't have a number, how can they set a goal for effective ministry? <laughs> you see, numbers are not our goal. Obedience is the goal. Uh, one more time. Numbers is not our goal. Our goal is obedience. So if you are saved, and if you are saved, I want you to say amen right now. Okay, if you are saved, are you proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? Are you praying for people, and, and maybe they won't get healed, praying for people that they would get healed? Are you praying for people? Right? So if you are doing that, and you're doing it with the heart, right heart, and the right motives, then that is an act of obedience. But if you're not doing it, you may not be saved. Why aren't you following him? You know, sometimes uh, over the years that uh, when I go to uh, some of these conferences with other pastors, inevitably, the first question they ask is, how many members do you have? You see, you don't even know this person. Oh, how many members do you have in your church? First thing they want to know. Oh, well, we have X, Y, and Z. I'm like, well, praise the Lord. That's really something that the Lord has given you. Now, this is what the Lord has given us. But look, look at what we're doing, though. Right? You may be doing that. Uh, we, I've, heard, I've heard myriad of stories with people in churches, you know, 20 times, the 100 times members that we have, and they are not effective in their ministry. I want you to know that. Understand that. Take solace in that. But... Numbers help, don't they? Right? Numbers, they help. But who do they help? Do they help us? Or do they help God? I remember the church that we grew up in, that you always knew how many people attended church the previous week, or maybe that, I can't remember what that number was, but there was always a plaque on the wall that when you walked in, you knew how many people were there, and based on that, how many people weren't there? And based on that, how many people need to be there? It's not about numbers, but about obedience. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. The story here about David, he uh, had proven himself to be a king. And now he was a bad mama jama. Beginning in verse 2, in fact. Verse 2. 2 Samuel 24, verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, said to David, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of my lord the king still see it, but why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Why does he delight in what? 
counting people. What was sinful was not for the fact that he was counting people, but he was counting people to assign value to them, uh, thinking himself superior to others because of the amount of numbers of people that are there. See? We count for reasons of pride, but if it wasn't by our strength that we got where we are, then how can we now boast for what we didn't provide in the first place? Uh, some of you have heard me tell this story before, and I'll tell it again. Uh, Bishop Brazier, one time I had a uh, uh, apostolic church of God, had a meeting with him, and I remember asking him, Addison point blank, I said, how did you get your church, this is, uh, at that time I wasn't even thinking about uh, starting a church, it didn't even cross my mind, honestly, but I asked him, I said, how did you get your church from where it was to where it is now? And he looked at me, and he told me, he looked me in the eye, and he says, I don't know. He didn't comment, and I was like scared. Well, maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I shouldn't have. I thought maybe he was mad at me or something like that. He just, he says, I don't know. And he, then he said, of course, uh, the, the idea is that it was the grace of God. In other words, it was not because of a plan that he had put into place to make this, that, and the other happen. But he understood it was because of the grace of God. Now in Acts, though, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we see that numbers uh, do come into play. It says here, Acts 2, verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here, Acts is counting. But understand, it's not necessarily the disciples who are counting. This is just part of the narrative. This is part of the storyline. And numbers were given uh, purely as a historical point of view. So as we consider what the Lord is calling us to do, uh, we must also consider the background for which uh, these average people, known as the disciples, had to contend with in proclaiming the gospel. Rome was in power. And all leaders at the end of the day had to bow down to the reality that any moment in time they could be considered traitors for not fully embracing Caesar or for not squashing all potential threats to Roman authority. While political and civil authorities had power to maneuver all of Israel according to their own whims and personal proclivities, the disciples needed to be sure who they followed. They needed to be sure of their leader and needed to be sure of the power he was supposed to impart to them. You see, if you are certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that the one you are serving, the one that you are following, is more important and more powerful than any sham government set up by men to make them look good, you will have eternal certitude. This means that you will not be phased by threats, you will not be phased by opposition because the one that you serve is greater than those who are trying to disempower you as a follower of Jesus Christ. But then look at this last passage, please. And you know this very well. Matthew chapter 28. Right? So some says that uh, the idea of power and authority is only limited to uh, these resources are only limited only to those 12 that we saw in Luke 
chapter 9. But Jesus says to his disciples here, and we call this passage, as you know, we call this the what? The great? Right, let's try it one more time. We call this the what? The great? We call it the great commission. And we believe that uh, this is our command. These are our marching orders to go forward. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, when, when Jesus, when he speaks of authority, is he only talking about the right to do something, but also, or is he only talking about the ability, or is he talking about both? See, he's talking about both. This idea of authority, look at Jesus' ministry. He had the authority and he had the power. So the idea is that when he says all authority, he's saying that all authority and power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to us who are followers of Christ. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Right? Does he impart that authority to us? That's right. Well, come on, come on you all, come on. All right? Don't be like some who, uh, when they get to some of the hard parts, they don't want to embrace it because they can't get their minds around it. And the fact remains, this is all in concord. I've, I've argued with some of the best, you better believe me. I've argued with some of them, and by argument, I had, had a very intense conversation, we'll say. Some of the best on both sides of the spectrum. He says, go. And when Jesus says to go, did he grant you his authority to go? Yes. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Only the Jews? No, of what? All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Uh, behold, I am with you always to the end of the, uh, the age. In other words, uh, my power and authority and my presence will be with you all the way to the end until I come back and roll this whole thing up. So you better get it straight. Know that our message of the gospel is not dependent upon our own resources, but the resources of the Lord God who made heaven and earth. Now, Jesus calls us today to reclaim that which he has intended for us in the first place. Again, verse 1, Luke 9, Jesus called, he gave, and he sent. Jesus called, he gave, and he sent. Jesus called, he gave, and he sent. For you, brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Christ, Jesus has called, he has given you authority, and he sends you in his name. Let's pray. Father, we recognize sometimes our slowness.